This morning, I'm excited to share a message with you called The Unstoppable Church, Unstoppable Church. And it's part of our Acts series. We've been looking at the book of Acts. We have started out as a church, and we wanted to look at when the church started out, how God used these people, spoke to these people, um, very ordinary, very flawed, very imperfect people, but God used them in a very powerful way. And last week when we were together, we spoke about Stephen and how Stephen, through the, the, the presence of the Holy Spirit in his life, was able to serve people in a way that we wouldn't be able to serve as selfish human beings, just, just wanting to live for ourselves. Stephen uh, found in Christ, in, through the Holy Spirit, an ability to really serve. And we see that at the end of Acts chapter number 7, where we ended last week, Stephen gets stoned to death. He gets up and he makes this, this great speech, this great me- shares this great message about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And these people listening to it, these leaders of Israel, the high council and the the Pharisees, they cannot handle this. And they take Stephen outside of the city and they stone him. And as they're stoning him, he prays for them. That's the height of servanthood. When the very people that are busy stoning you to death, you can use your last words, your last breath to forgive them and to ask God to not hold that sin against them. And so this morning, we're going to kind of pick up because that was a catalyst. Something happened in that moment as Stephen died, the first martyr in the church. And so we're going to pick it up this morning from Acts chapter number eight. If you have your Bibles here this morning, uh, I hope you have a Bible. Everybody should have a Bible because these days all of our Bibles are digital. Um, So if you haven't downloaded the app, it'll take about three seconds to do that. Uh, Get any Bible app uh, and uh, open up with me to Acts chapter number eight uh, and verse one. Acts chapter number eight and verse one. That's why whenever I'm out at a restaurant and I'm on my phone, you know, my wife is like, well, can you just put your phone down? And I'm like, I'm, I'm just reading the Holy Scriptures. This is, you know, I'm actually, you know, it's, when, it's like when you fall asleep at work and, and somebody walks in and, you, you know, you open up your eyes and you sit up and you just go, in Jesus' name, amen. And you just look very spiritual and it looks like you've actually been focusing on the Lord. So um, if you want to look uh, as if you're focusing on the Lord this morning, I hope you are. Turn with me to Acts chapter number eight. And verse 1, and we're going to read these, these four verses together, something incredible that happens as Stephen is being stoned. And it says in 8 verse 1, it says, and Saul approved of his execution. Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. So this great persecution that arises as Stephen dies. And and this man, Saul, goes out and uh, he, the Bible says, was ravaging the church. I want to, just before we pray, go from there to Acts chapter number 5. We're just going to jump back uh, three chapters. And this is a moment when the disciples have been preaching. The disciples have been arrested. And again, they're brought before the Pharisees. And it says in Acts 5 verse 33, it says, When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. They wanted to kill the disciples. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. Take care what you're about to do with these men. 
For before these days, Titus rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in this present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. If this is of God, no matter what you do, you will not be able to oppose them, lest you be found fighting against God. Some powerful words, uh, and, and, and I want to touch on these scriptures as we look at this message called Unstoppable Church. Let's just go ahead and pray together this morning. Jesus, we thank you so much for your force that is with us, God, your grace that is with us, your spirit that is with us, your presence that is with us. And God, that we do not stand in our own strength. We do not serve you uh, out of our, our own sufficiency, God, but our sufficiency is from you. And we stand strong because you are strong in our midst, oh God. So we, we wanna thank you this morning for the opportunity to humble ourselves before your word, God, to open our hearts and minds and allow you to speak to us in this moment, oh Jesus. We, we thank you, God, that, that you are meeting every person where they're at, Lord God. If they've been Christians for a long time or if they're, they're new to the faith or if they're just exploring and visiting God, we thank you that you meet each of us and you speak to us directly this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So Gamaliel is this grand teacher, this grand rabbi, this well-respected and honored uh, teacher of the law uh, and rabbi in the nation of Israel. He's part of the high council. Uh, he's a Pharisee of Pharisees. And Gamaliel gives this warning. Gamaliel says that if this thing, if this movement, if this thing about Jesus and, and him dying on the cross and saving people from their sins and, and the miracles that we've heard that he's done and the story that he has been raised from the dead, if this is of man, it will fail. It will die out just like every other guy who had a story, who had a myth, who had a legend, it'll die out. It'll come to nothing. But if, if this is of God, we cannot oppose it. We will not, no matter what we do, be able to overthrow them. And so this is the, the advice, the counsel of Gamaliel. And Gamaliel had a bright young student by the name of Saul. So Saul, who later became the Apostle Paul, was a student of Gamaliel. And Saul was pretty much pipped to be the next big thing. He was already very learned. He was very passionate and very zealous about the law. He calls himself a Pharisee among Pharisees. And he has this teacher Gamaliel, but we see from Acts chapter number eight and verse one, that Saul doesn't adhere or, or heed the warning of his teacher. Because when they take Stephen and they start stoning Stephen, Saul is standing there and he approves of this death. He was so passionate about the law and about uh, the, the, the teachings of the Pharisees that he then gets letters from Jerusalem, the Bible tells us, and he starts going all across that, that region and he is persecuting Christians. He is coming against the church. He is dragging men and women off to prison and people were legitimately afraid of him. They were worried about what would happen to them if this man named Saul got a hold of them. And so at this time, when Stephen dies, 
a great persecution starts against the church. Now, up until this point, they kind of had a very comfortable, uh, almost, I want to call it, all of it is God's grace, but almost a grace period where the church was still seen as part of Judaism. And so they had a free venue. They met up in the temple and, uh, and, and the Roman government left them alone. They weren't a threat to anybody. Obviously, the Jews had their issue with them. But in general, the church was able to grow and flourish in those early days. And it's kind of like this morning when you were in bed and you have, you know, blanket upon blanket upon blanket and it's so warm. And uh, this morning I actually got up and because it's winter now, uh, it was dark and I was getting into the shower. My boy got up. He came into the bathroom and he said, Dad, is it Anchor Church today? And I said, yes, it is. And he kind of looks at the window. He goes, but it's dark outside. You know, it's like, it's not even day. What are you doing? You know, and, um, and so when you're sleeping and you've got this warm blanket on you, it's just a comfortable space. And it's like the church was in this comfortable space. But how many of you know that God did not create the church to be a comfortable place? He did not create the church to be a place where we just snuggle up and talk about how fun it is to do nothing and to just lie there. I actually did this on Friday when this cold front hit. I, I got up and I was so just determined that I was going to go to gym. I got up, I put, my, I put my clothes on, I put my shoes on, I went downstairs, uh, I had something light to eat and I was like, oh, I just forgot something up in the room. And when I walked back into the room, this was early on Friday morning. That bed just looked amazing. And I'm just going to confess to you this morning, I took my shoes off and with my gym clothes, I got back into bed. And uh, so it was a little bit of a fail, but I'll try, I'll try again this week. Um, but in many ways, this event that happened with Stephen was basically like God removing the blanket, the comfortable space from the church. And it's oftentimes why God will take us through certain things, even as a church, even as a group, as He moves us to go out and do the things He's, he's called us to do. Through the death of, of Stephen, the church up until that point had just been in Jerusalem. But in Acts chapter number one, when Jesus spoke to the church, He said, you will be my witnesses here in Jerusalem and in Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so, in this moment, what happens is, as Stephen dies, the persecution arises against them, and the Bible says that they are scattered. That's the blanket being ripped off. That's the church going out. And it says they are scattered all across Judea and Samaria, and wherever they go, they're preaching the word. So the death of Stephen quickened God's plan for the church. It was the catalyst that started a movement that you and I are still a part of 2,000 years later. We're still a part of that movement that started that day when the first Christian died for his faith. And so I'm so grateful that there are times when God removes the blanket. I'm so grateful that there are times where God disrupts our comfort. I'm so grateful that there are times where God calls us to more. And when we struggle to attain it, when we struggle to push for it, when we want to get back into bed, He helps us get there. 
Because that means that God wants to use your life. He wants to accomplish things in and through your life. He wants to reach people. And so no matter what kind of trials you face, no matter what hardships you come uh, up against, no matter how many people have, have how many different things to say about you, you're unstoppable because of Christ. No matter what happens, we win. We have victory in Christ, and He leads us in this victorious procession. No matter how the devil comes against us, we know that Satan has, has often stood against the church. He has stood against us as individuals. He stands against us and, and, and tries to defeat us, but the Bible says it doesn't matter how hard-pressed we are, we cannot be destroyed. We cannot be destroyed. And I'm just hoping to encourage some of you this morning that have been facing some trials, that have been facing some difficulty, that have been facing some confusion or some, or some hardship in your life to let you know that what God is doing in your life is unstoppable. What God is doing in your life will accomplish what He set it out to accomplish. And no matter who tries to ruin you and ruin your name and bring you low, no matter how the devil attacks you, God is unstoppable. The gates of hell cannot prevail against us. And I take great courage in that. I take great courage in knowing that I already have the victory in Jesus. Facing trials is a part of life. It's a part of life. We live in a broken world. And we all go through difficult things. And we've all been through difficult things. And we all still will go through difficult things. And it used to be, for me in my life, something that I feared greatly. That I, I was really hoping that God wouldn't have to uh, allow bad things in my life. That I could actually just, if I just did everything right and continued to pray and continued to fast and continued to read my Bible, that everything in my life would just go well, always. <laughs> and I could get to the end of my life and go, phew, okay, I made it. I, I kind of made it out of this unscathed. And that was my view of hardship in life, that I was just doing everything to try and avoid it. Because I believe that being a good Christian would lead to living a, a near-perfect life, living a life without trouble or without persecution or without any of these kinds of things. But we know that that's not what life is like. We know that life has ups and downs. We have many things that we can't explain. We have many battles that we go through. We often have many questions for God. And God doesn't do evil. But the promise of Scripture is, is that when evil happens in our lives, when we encounter evil, when we encounter difficulties, when we encounter hardship, God redeems those things. He's a redeemer. It says in Romans 8 verse 27 and verse 31, it says this. It says, and we know that for those who, God, who love God, all things work together for good. We know that for those who love God, all things, everybody just say all things. All things, not some things, not only the good things, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. You see, God works everything together for good because He has a purpose in all things in your life. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If God stands with us, who can stand against us? In my own life, I was in ministry very early. I was 21 years old when I was already working for a church on a, on a full-time basis. And I was, I was doing everything that I thought that God was asking me to do. And I had this very bad misconception that that meant that everything was just going to go well 
in my life. And in around 2009, uh, my wife and I had been married for a, a couple of years. And at that time, we decided that we were going to start having kids. And uh, I'll, I'll share more on just uh, my journey. Some of you may know it. Some of you may not. But, but I'll share more on my journey in the future. But this morning, I just wanted to give you a brief overview of, of how God convinced us uh, of His goodness, even through some of the difficult things that we've been through. We ended up in that year of 2009, um, losing that first baby that we fell pregnant with and uh, ha having an ectopic pregnancy, which means that the baby was in the fallopian tube and not in the womb. And so we lost that tube and we lost that baby. And we thought, you know what, it's, it's just because the devil knows how absolutely awesome our kids are going to be and how they will all play for the Springboks. And so, you know, this is just the devil's attack against us, but we'll have, we'll have more kids. And later on in that year, uh, in, in about June, we fell pregnant again. And we found out later on, to make a long story short, that we were pregnant with twins at that time. But one of the two babies was again uh, in the remaining fallopian tube. And so my wife had internal bleeding. Um, she nearly died uh, being in hospital. She was completely bloated from internal bleeding. We didn't even know what was going on. And um, after uh, a few days of, of being in hospital and all kinds of, of doctors and second opinions and everything, we ended up um, losing both those babies, losing the baby that was in the, the womb as well as the baby that was in that tube. And so in that time, we lost three babies and both tubes and our ability to have kids. And so in this moment, we were like, well, what is going on? This, we, we, we don't accept this. We, you know, Christians have all kinds of responses to difficult things that happen. Like, this is just an attack. We just got to stand against it. And so we took a, a car and we sold it and we spent 50,000 Rand uh, doing in vitro fertilization. And uh, here in roughly, I think it was September that year, that also failed. Now we had no babies, no tubes, and no more money. And there was nothing that we could do to help ourselves anymore. There was nothing that we could come up with. And what happened in that time is that actually our theology was failing us. The theology that when you do good things, then good things are going to happen to you, kind of like a weird Christian karma, it was failing us in a very, very, very big way. At the same time, I had been serving in church for a number of years by that point and, and uh, just got tired. I got tired of the church game. I got tired of the, of the church politics. I got tired of, of church leadership and, and, and all the stuff that, that can be, a church can be a messy place. And in that system, in a system that was very, very driven and, and performance-based, I burnt out completely. I got so sick that I had kind of flu-like symptoms for eight months. I went to the doctor. At one point, the doctor drew eight vials of blood from me and when the tests came back, he prescribed me sleeping tablets <laughs> because he said, there is absolutely nothing wrong with you. You're emotionally worn out, completely worn out. I had reached the end of myself in a very big way. And at that time, the church that I was at asked me to teach on the book of Romans, but to do it verse by verse. And so as I started going through Romans, which is the greatest exposition of the gospel in the New Testament, Paul just laying it out from chapter 2 to chapter 11, this is what the gospel is. I started to, to come across certain things that, that looked and sounded different to me. And I, and I don't have time this morning to, to share our whole story. I'll touch on it a little bit again uh, towards the end. But what God was doing in my life was so rich. And if I think back on that time, if you could say to me, Adrian, if you could go back to 
the beginning of 2009, would you ask God to do things completely differently? I would tell you, no ways. Because looking back, it has been the most blessed time of my entire life. It's a time in which God caused me to see Christ and the finished work of Jesus on the cross and everything that Jesus has done for me in a greater way than I have ever seen it or known it before. And God helped me to, instead of putting my faith in myself and how well I can serve God, put my faith in Jesus and what he has done for me on the cross. And it completely changed my life. Nothing that anybody has ever given me in my life has been worth more than those difficult years, those difficult times that my wife and I went through. Everything that we went through at that time has prepared us for today. It's the reason why I can stand here today. Not because I'm approved by some human institution, not because I have a degree in theology, but because God has taken me through His fire and allowed me to go through certain things in life, preparing my heart so that I can do the things, that all things can work together because I am called according to His purpose. That's why I can stand here today. And the stuff that we go through now as a church and as a young couple leading and as our team leading this church, the stuff we go through now is only but preparation for the great things that God will still do in the future. If everything He has done has brought us to this point, imagine what He will still do to bring us to that point we see in the future. And so we're unstoppable. We're unstoppable because of the the process that God has in our lives the things he has planned, the good things he has planned. Romans 5 verse 3 says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So in suffering, God causes us to endure. And that endurance brings hope. And in that hope, what is that hope? He pours out his love. In my life, I've never experienced God's love as powerfully as when I was going through difficult times. And so often we want to serve a God that never allows anything bad to happen. And we fail to understand that sometimes God uses bad things that happen to make his love known, to make his son known, because he has something greater that he wants to do. We see this uh, with Joseph. Joseph is this young man who has a dream from God. He has a dream, and in this dream, his brothers and his father, they all bow down to him. And pretty much like every immature Christian, he runs to a bunch of people to tell them how awesome he is because of the dream that God has given him. And obviously this spurs up jealousy. He's he's just told his, his 11 older brothers, if you have 11 older brothers, do not share dreams with them. Not of that nature. You're you're asking for trouble. But he goes to his brothers and he says, "I, I had this dream and in this dream, you all bow down to me. Isn't that awesome? You guys are gonna bow down to me one day. God told me. And so they're, they're jealous of him and they take him and they, they want to end his life. But his older brother, Reuben, the oldest of the brothers, he speaks up and he says, maybe we shouldn't kill him. Let's just throw him in this pit and, uh, and take, him, uh, take his coat back to our father and say he's dead. But they then see some slave traders coming by and they actually sell their own brother into slavery. 
and Joseph gets sold into slavery. He travels to all the way from there to Egypt. And in Egypt, he gets sold into Pharaoh's house, and, and uh, he seems to be making a little bit of, of traction, you know, and he's serving well, and, and he's getting some influence. And before you know it, there's a false accusation that comes against him. And this false accusation lands him up in prison. And in prison, God uses him to minister to some of the prisoners, and he tells the prisoner, when you get out, don't forget me. And the prisoner goes, I won't. And they leave, and they forget him. And he just sits there for years in this prison. Now, I can only imagine what Joseph was thinking sitting in that prison. Can you imagine what you would be thinking? God gave you a dream about your life, about what he was going to do, about how he was going to use you, about the things he was going to give you. And now you're sitting in a prison for years, day after day after day after day. And you're asking yourself the question, like I'm sure Joseph was, has God forgotten me? Has God abandoned me? Does he still care about me? Why did he give me a dream just to abandon me? But through everything, the prison, the false accusations, the slavery, God was busy working in Joseph's life. And when we get to the end of the story of Joseph, we see how he goes from being an arrogant self-righteous young man with a dream from God, going through an incredibly difficult process, but arriving at this place where God causes him to be a mature, wise leader. And the process of God, you see, when you're arrogant and when you're self-righteous, your heart is hard. But through God's process, through uh, us experiencing hardship, God softens our hearts and makes us compassionate. And even in my life, before we went through a lot of that stuff, we had a, a man who had the gift of prophecy and who, who gave us a word from God and said to us that God is saying that you are going through a season of His grace, a difficult season, but it will be a season of His grace. And His words to us were, the comfort that you receive in this season, you will be able to, in the future, comfort others also. That's what God does. And so Joseph goes from being in this arrogant, hard self-righteous, proud guy. Now he's been sold into slavery. Now he's been falsely accused. Now he's been sitting in prison. And he comes out, and what God has done is that God has softened his heart. And so when he sees his brothers again, they come and they, they come before him, they don't recognize him. The Bible tells us that, that his heart was so softened by the process of God that he turns and covers his face so that they cannot see him crying because he's seeing his brothers again. That's what God does in our hearts through his process. And that is hope for us, that God is, is preparing our hearts and causing us to be more compassionate and be ca causing us to become more wise. God uses it for good. He has a plan with your life and he has to work on your heart in order to fulfill that plan. And so when Joseph eventually shows himself to his brothers and reveals himself, he says in Genesis 50, verse 20, he says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. 
You see, God brought Joseph into Egypt, and while he was there, he gave Joseph the ability to interpret Pharaoh's dream. And Pharaoh's dream warned about a famine that would come. So for seven years before the famine, Egypt was preparing for that famine, putting food away. And when the famine hit, because of Joseph's presence in that place, the lives of many, many people were being saved. And so Joseph goes, I know you sold me into slavery. I know you meant evil against me, but don't worry about it because what you did against me, God has used for good. And now literally people's lives are being saved because God has a plan. You see, the problem is, is that our perspective is limited. That's our biggest problem. We have a limited perspective. We don't know what God knows. He sees the, biggest, the bigger picture. He sees what he wants to do through your life. But we only experience the pain of right now. And somebody once explained it to me like this. It's, it's like if you, if you had a lion that was caught in a trap, one of these traps that the poachers would set, and his, his leg is caught in the trap. And a ranger came along to help that lion and to set it free. In order to release the lion from the trap, the ranger would have to close the trap a little bit harder so that it could disengage and open it up. But the lion doesn't have the perspective of the ranger. The, the lion doesn't understand that the ranger is trying to help it and to save its life and to set it free. All that the lion knows is this hurts. And in our lives, sometimes we're going through hard things and we don't understand what God is doing. All that we experience is that this right now, it hurts. But we have limited perspective because we don't know that this man, this ranger, this God is setting us free. He is saving our lives. I wanna just end today by talking about two really encouraging things that we can take out of this. And the first one is that God is always with us. Even when we go through pain, even when we go through hardship, God is always with us. He never abandons us. And that's a promise. That's a promise straight from the throne room of God. You can take that promise and you can bank your life on it. No matter what you're going through today, no matter what you might go through tomorrow, Jesus is with you. And Jesus is enough. He is enough. I no longer fear hardship the way I used to because I've learned to be content in Christ. He never abandons us. Even in the life of Joseph, in Acts 7 verse 9, it speaks about Joseph and it says, and the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, this was part of Stephen's speech, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him. When he was sold into Egypt, God was with him. Genesis 39 verse 3 says, his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. In Genesis 39 and 21, it says, But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. So even when Joseph was in the prison, guess what? God was there with him. And what did God show him? Steadfast love. So we can be convinced today that even in our hardship, even in our difficult times, we serve a compassionate God who is always present. We serve a God who cares about our afflictions. He really does care. But sometimes he just takes the blanket off. and says, I know it's cold. I know you don't want to get out of bed. But I am setting you up for something greater. 
I'm going to make your life matter in a way that you never even imagined. The more God stretches us, the more God causes us to grow and to mature, the further He can release us into everything He has prepared for us. Number two, so number one is that God is always with us, and number two, that God always has a plan. Whatever we're going through, God always has a plan. There is no single thing that God ever does that is not completely filled with life-giving purpose. And so how that encourages me is that sometimes I go through things and I feel like this was so unnecessary. This didn't have to happen. But the promise is, is that God redeems all things. And so I can always take courage and take hope and be encouraged through that, knowing that every part of my process matters. Every part of what I go through, every part of what I learn, every little struggle I have to go through, it matters. God is doing something in me, even when I don't understand it. And, and we don't always, and I want to say this, we don't always have the answers to the whys in our lives. We want them. We want those answers. We want to just understand. Just tell me, God, what are you doing? I'll be satisfied. I'll leave. I'll be happy. I'll keep serving you. We want the answers to why did this happen. And many times God doesn't give us the answer, but what he gives us is his presence. He says, don't worry, I have a plan. This is where the idea of faith in God and trust in God really hits home. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but it's really easy to worship God and to come to church and be excited to be pumped for church when you're healthy and your family's doing well and your bank account is full and your career is on track. Hey, let's worship. <laughs> but take one of those out of the equation and you notice sometimes it's not quite so easy because we stand and worship and we go, but if God really loves me, why is this happening? And sometimes it, it, it affects us and it causes us to doubt. And this is where faith becomes like a pillar of strength to us. And this is a miracle. I can't tell you exactly how this happens, but it's a miracle. And I remember in my life coming to that understanding that the only thing I need is Jesus and that Jesus is enough. And I remember going to my wife. I, I preached at a high school one, one afternoon and, and as I was preaching, God just spoke to me. And I came home and I said to my wife and I said to her, God spoke to me while I was speaking today. And I want to tell you, we don't need, at that point, we didn't know if we would ever have kids. We don't need a baby to be happy. Those were not easy words that I said to my wife. That was, those weren't light words. That wasn't something we so desperately wanted to have children. But I came to my wife and I said, we don't need a baby in order to be happy. We just need Jesus. And if in God's infinite wisdom, He believes that we will have a better life that will serve him better without having children, then we've got to trust that that is the best possible life that we could live. And those were very, very difficult words for us to say. But that's what faith really is. It's not saying, well, I have this thing that I want, so I'm going to focus on this thing and I'm just going to wait for God. My life cannot continue until I have this thing that I want. No, it's when you come to a point where you trust God so deeply that you say, even if I don't get what I want, I believe He's good and I believe He has a good plan. That's faith. 
And this strengthens our relationship. It proves our relationship with God. Not proves in the sense that it shows us whether it's there or not. Proves like when you, when you bake and you add yeast to the bread and, and, or to the dough and the, the yeast causes that dough to rise. That's, that's what, what this kind of faith does. It causes our relationship with God to take on a fuller substance, a fullness. When it's not just, oh God, I want this, and oh God, I want that, and oh God, my life would be so perfect if that hadn't happened or if I can just have that happen. But when you go, God, no matter what happens, I trust you. That's approving of faith. And hardship can strengthen our faith in this way. And as we're scattered, we can preach the word. As we experience hardship, we go out and and God rips the blanket off and he unsettles our comfort. And he goes, because I've called you for more than lying in bed. I've called you to go out and live and to share and to do the good things that I want you to do. I believe that just as Joseph was able to save the lives of many, God will use you and I and this church to save the lives of many. And our combined process, what we've all been through in our lives, has only prepared us for the great things that God wants to do through our lives. And what we will find is even those that oppose us, even those that stand against us, even those that stand against you, like Saul, who stood and watched as Stephen was being put to death and and completely approved. One chapter later in Acts chapter number nine, Jesus meets, meets with Saul. And Saul becomes Paul. And Paul goes out and he begins to share the gospel immediately. He's just sharing the gospel. And he writes two-thirds of the, book, the books in this Bible that we read today, in this New Testament. This guy that opposed the church, who's dragging and the Bible says ravaging the church, becomes its greatest supporter. And what God will do in your life many times is the people that oppose you in the strongest way in the future will be your greatest supporter. Because God works all things together for good. So I want to encourage you this morning. Nothing can stop the process of God's goodness in your life. He will complete the work, the good work that he has begun in you. He is both the author and the finisher of your faith. And we can know that today. God is a God who will complete the work he started in us. We can take courage in knowing that God is always with us that God never abandons us, never leaves us, never walks away from us. Even though we might feel like we're in prison, even though we've been sold into slavery, God doesn't leave us. And the reason why He doesn't leave us is because He has a great plan for us. He has a plan for our lives. And we can all come to know that plan, walk in that plan, and fulfill that plan. And through that plan, just like in the life of Joseph, many people will be saved.